following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. And you can find your way in, in uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know that we've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians, and, and here we now find our place at chapter 11. Start reading in, in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. If you're visiting with us, I know you're thinking, boy, did I pick the right week. To start going back to church. God, I haven't been, at, I haven't been to church in two years. I think I want to start going back. Oh, that two years sounds good. I think I'll go back to not going to church. You know, this is a great passage. And here we find ourselves in this series through 1 Corinthians. And, and I think it's going to communicate something about what we value here at Holy Cross about God's Word. Uh, you know, we want to walk through Scripture. and We want to expose what the Scripture says. And we don't want to jump around to, to passages that are really easy to understand or make us feel, feel nice and warm. We want to confront God's Word and ask questions like, what does this have to do with me? And if there was ever a week that, that proves that we value Scripture and all of Scripture, this is the week that proves that. We value this passage because it is God's instruction to us. You know, one of the things that we did growing up as I was a kid, I remember, it was actually one of those really fond memories of growing up. Um, as, a, as a young boy with my siblings, every Sunday night we would turn on the TV and gather around the TV and watch the wonderful world of Disney. And there was a particular program on that was on every Sunday night, and it was Little House on the Prairie. Anybody ever watch that? Yeah. And, um, and there were two images that come to my mind as I remember this show. One was at night, it seemed like every episode or, or many of them would end in this way. You know, the husband and wife would be discussing the day. They'd be talking about their, their kids. And what, what, where were they sleeping? In separate beds, right? With a, with a table in between them. And I remember that image just sticks out in my mind of, of mom and dad going to bed in separate beds. And another image that came to my mind was going to church. You see, they had one church in the middle of their town, and everybody would go to church. The whole town, the whole town would go to church together. And all the women would be wearing bonnets, Right? 
And it was, just, it was a beautiful thing for them to be wearing. There were, there were these head coverings. And, you know, now I've realized, you know, what these images signified. And then I just thought it was some, a way for a woman to be pretty and, and an accessory like women might wear today, like earrings or, or scarves or something like that. But even in the early Christian church, even in the first century, even the early church fathers affirmed this kind of practice for women to wear head coverings. It was a practice of the very early church, and even St. Augustine in the Middle Ages and the Puritans, and even through the, the, the Revolutionary War, women wore head coverings when they went to church. And over time, it probably became just a, a fashion statement or a fashion accessory rather than a religious statement and I don't see many of you wearing head coverings today if you're a woman. And so it's interesting. Are we being disobedient? That's a good question to ask as we come to this passage. Are we being disobedient in what God's called us to do? Well, it has been a great joy for me to study this passage and to, and to bring it to you all and to talk with you about uh, God's word and how it applies to us. And I believe that this is going to be thoroughly a very good pre-Valentine's Day service, okay? This is the best passage. Guys, after today, you're going to go, and if you've got a lady, you're going to plan the best Valentine's Day for her. This is a good passage for us, guys and girls. So, how do we know which commands in the Bible are applicable today? And which ones are, are discount, discredited or discounted as, as mere cultural practices or contextual principles. I want to look at a few passages with you, just really briefly. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Why do we obey that? Oh, well, God tells us not to murder. Of course, this is a command that we should, we should obey. Should we cut that one out? Absolutely not. What about this one? Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead, or tattoo yourself. I am the Lord. Nah, Leviticus is weird. We can, just kind of, we can just kind of get rid of that entire book, right? I mean, who listens to Leviticus? Do we need to listen to that one? How about this one? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Many times I wish that this was a command I didn't have to obey. What about this one? Can we cut that one out? You're thinking, oh, that's the New Testament. That's the New Testament. We need to obey that. Well, how about this one? This one's found in the New Testament as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice... Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Should we greet one another with a holy kiss? Maybe we should. In fact, maybe we should do that. You know what? We're having a hospitality team meeting afterwards. (laughs) We're talking about greeting one another. Maybe we should just instill this kind of practice. In fact, I think it's a great idea. God commands it. In fact, there's like six or seven other passages just in the New Testament that talk about greeting one another with a holy kiss as something commanded that we should do. This is the last time I will see you. (laughs) But the question is, how do we decide? Because our passage deals with with a very, a very explicit command. That when women pray, that when women are in service, they should cover their heads. So I want to walk through this and answer that question with you. And first I want to look at two really quick principles for, for we, what we should have in our, in our, our bag, I guess, for when we approach God's word. 
and asking that question, is this what God's commanded us? And then I want to look at three questions particular to our passage, and we'll just walk through those together. All right, so the quick, the quick two principles are this. One, let's look at the roots. Where do the roots of this passage come from? Is it rooted in culture? Is it rooted in the context? Is it rooted in creation? Is it from some greater authority that God has given to us, like the created order? Marriage, for instance, is one of those things, one of those principles that is clearly rooted in God's created order and some deeper theological roots that do not change throughout culture as culture changes. Another thing we look at is we look at, we look at the rest of Scripture. We look at, is this reaffirmed, is this practice reaffirmed across, across the, the, the landscape of God's Word? For instance, the Ten Commandments, we see that it was, it was brought up early on in, in Exodus and, and Deuteronomy uh, from Moses, and then we see these, these commands reaffirmed throughout all of Scripture. Even Jesus Christ himself will reaffirm these commands. And so when Peter affirms the command to greet one another with a kiss, he says this in 1 Peter, Greet one another with a kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ. So it's not so much a kiss that, w- w- that we should greet each other with, it is, the, it is what it signifies, what is being signified when we greet one another. So maybe it's safe to say with this passage, we should greet one another with a culturally appropriate way to show our affection and love for one another. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> you can come back. You can keep coming to church. So is this a command that we can abandon? No. See, the command itself is rooted in something real and theological and important that we cannot abandon, even though the culture changes. We should embrace this command to love one another, to greet one another with love and affection, to express a culturally appropriate way that we care and love one another. And that's important. A handshake, a fist pump. Who knows what it will be in in 100 years from now, how we will greet one another with love. I mean, moving our fingers through each other's hair, you know, flicking each other's Adam's apple. I don't know what it's going to be. How do you let someone know that you love them and you're glad to see them? I mean, it would be interesting. But that expression can, can change over cultures. But the root of it doesn't. And in fact, we should. We are commanded to love one another. And hopefully that will motivate you as we come together. Wow, I'm commanded to come and to express an appropriate way of love and affection for others. I'm encouraged by that. So... Let's get into this passage together. We're, ans- we're going to answer these three questions. What, what do we learn about God? Because if we deal well with this passage, we are going to learn something about God. If we deal well with any passage in the Bible, we're going to learn something about God. It's going to teach us about who He is and what He is like. And so that's what we're going to answer. The second question is, what do we learn about ourselves? If we are willing to learn and we have open hearts and minds to know God's Word and to apply it to our life, we're going to learn something about ourselves. And lastly, how do we apply this today? How is this truth, how is this command applied to us today? What are we going to go home leaving with and, and, and changing about our lives or affirming in our lives? So those are good questions that this passage is going to raise. So the first, let's get into it. What do we learn about God? Look at verse 3 with me. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of A wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. When Paul addresses his friends, he starts out with this issue, and he says, I want you to understand something. 
And he starts out with it. It's like him saying, I want you to become familiar with a kind of relationship that is so important. There's a kind of way that a man should relate to a woman and a woman to a man and the way that we should all relate to God. And so he starts out with this very complex issue, getting to the heart of this and saying, let's start with the relationship. Because if you can understand the relationship, you can understand how you are to to live. So there's a way that we should do this. And he says, the head of Christ is God. There's There's an important relationship going on between God and himself. Isn't that interesting to think of it like that? He says, the head of Christ is God. There is a relationship going on within the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, completely equal in power and authority and divine essence, neither created by one another, neither created by one another, and yet all existing in eternity, in eternity past. And so we see one God, three persons, with different roles, different functions, but equal in their honor and power. Look at, for instance, how this works out in in salvation, for example. You know, the Bible says that God the Father adopts us. It is His doing, His work, His function to, before the foundations of the earth, the Bible says that He chose us, He predestined us, He he chose us for His own. And so God the Father initiates with us and adopts us into His family. And then we learn in the Bible that Jesus Christ, God the Son, atones for our sins, and so He does the work of our salvation on the cross. He lives a sinless life. He bears our sins on the cross, and he forgives us. And so he pays the penalty that we should all pay. And so we see that God the Son is doing a work in our salvation, different from God the Father. And then we see God the Holy Spirit. He fills us. He convinces us. If you've ever had that that conviction or convincing in your heart that felt like you, you heard something about Christ and his work for you and that he loves you, and you felt compelled to learn more, or to trust in that, and to abandon all things. That's the work of God the Holy Spirit working in your life. He's convincing you. And he brings our heart to new life. One God, three persons, extremely unique in their function, and yet accomplishing one work of salvation. There is unity, yet diversity, in the Godhead. There is equality, yet submission. There is equality, yet unique role complementing going on. And so there is this beautiful dance. I don't know if you've ever seen it this way. This beautiful dance between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that's honoring one another, yet equal, submitting one to another, yet powerful in what they're doing. And no single one of those persons within the Godhead feeling left out. None of them saying, oh, shucks, I wish I could have done that. None of them feeling slighted in any way, but completely affirmed in their work. It's a beautiful dance going on with God. God the Father has authority over God the Son. God the Father has authority over Jesus. The Bible says here, we read, the head of Christ is God. Look at John chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying, I cannot do anything on my own. I must do only what God the Father has told me to do, has allowed me to do, has instructed me to do, because he has authority over me. 
He also says in John chapter 8, God the Son delights to do the will of the Father. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus, God the Son, eternally existing, says everything I do, I delight in doing the will of the Father. I do what he wants me to do, not him doing what I want to do. He submits his will. And we see that even though Jesus is in a subordinate and submissive role to God the Father, he is delighting in being in that position. It is a position of honor. So when what God manifests within himself, he pours out. He pours out into the crown of his creation. What is the crown of God's creation? What is the best thing that God has created that has the most beauty, the most majesty, the most honor and dignity that you can think of? The Grand Canyon? The, the uh, what, the Appalachian Trail? The, I don't know, Yuma? I mean, what is like the great, what is the platypus? I mean, it's like part duck, part like awesome. It's like, what is the crown of his creation? You are. I am. We are the crown of his creation. We are the most beautiful, most indwelled with honor and dignity of all of his creation. And what he has within himself, he pours out into us. And this doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. If you're not a Christian, you are the crown of God's creation. Whether you do nothing else with your life ever again, you're the crown of his creation. Because you were made in his image. And nothing else in creation was made like you. In Genesis chapter, chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image. You know, God is saying, let us make man. He's talking to himself. He's talking to the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, talking together, discerning together. And him saying, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. To be human is to be like God in how we relate to one another and with him. This is important to know as we move through the rest of our passage. Because it starts with this. Paul says, I want you to know relationship that God has with himself so that you can know the relationship that you are to have with one another. God has made you male. God has made you female. He has made you with dignity and honor and purpose. And there is perfect equality from the person to our left and right. And yet God has given us honor and dignity in how we function and how we how we live our lives. So the second question, let's move to that. What do we learn about ourselves in this passage? Let's look at a few verses and then we'll work through it together. Let's go to verse 8 in our passage. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor nor man of woman. For a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. I promise you can read that a hundred times and still be confused. What is going on? The meaning of husband and wife, the honor of womanhood and manhood, is becoming increasingly vague, isn't it? There's a show that Janine and I love. Unashamedly, we love it. It's called Modern Family. Anybody watch that show? 
I mean, I felt like Little House on the Prairie, Modern Family, easy transition, you know. <laughs> Modern Family, we enjoy it. It's a commentary on reality. Whether we like it or not, this is reality. This is the world that we live in. That families are broken, families are mixed, families are the role of husband and wife, male, female. It becomes increasingly vague. We don't know the difference between one another. And you may understand your role. You're thinking, I, I, I'm getting along well. Kids are healthy and doing well. I'm working hard. My wife is, is happy. She's enjoying her routine. Husbands are enjoying their routine at work. Each one is, is doing the things that they feel God's called them to do. Life is good. But there's a difference in knowing what God's called you to and who you are and embracing it and finding an ultimate joy in it because of who you are and how you've been made. There should be this conviction in our hearts for how we have been made, male and female. Your role as husband means leadership, love, reflecting Christ in what you do. Your role as wife means this. You know, when God created the all that there is, and he looked at man who was alone, he saw that it was not good. And you are the answer to that not good. (laughs) Isn't that great? That you are the answer, ladies, to that not good, that God saw there was something not good, and you are the answer to that. Jerry Maguire was right. No? Nobody? (laughs) You complete me. Sort of. You complete me. You, I would say you complement me. We complement one another, male and female, as we come together to know God, to pursue Him, to work together in our distinct roles. We com- complement one another. And because we're created in the image of God, the idea of personal autonomy is a myth. The, the idea that, hey, we're individual people, that what we do is, is, is none of anybody's business. What I do is fine. What you do is fine. It's a myth because we're not created that way. God does not exist in that way. And since he has made us in his likeness, in his image, according to his image, we are not autonomous. We need one another. And he's set it up that way. So when God calls a wife a helper, he does not have in mind that a helper, meaning helping in, in merely just domestic responsibilities and to cook and to clean in the home, it involves household responsibilities, but is so much more as a ministry partner expressing their unique calling with husband and wife together on the road to knowing and glorifying God, embracing who they are and how God has made them, and finding complete joy in that. While men and, equal, men and women are, are equal, completely equal in value and essence, God has called us to distinct and different roles and has equipped us in unique and distinct ways as we serve our families, as we serve the church, as we live in society. And so we learn from this passage that embracing our distinct role is crucial to understanding and enjoying God. As we grow in this understanding of this relationship, we will grow in our understanding of God's relationship and vice versa. When I say the word husband, how does that make you feel? What does that do? You know, this should mean something very big. I mean, it should almost give you, your heart should start to get a little faster. Because that word is so potent with meaning. With meaning. It is so rich with honor and dignity. 
That there is not only, there's a role that is tied to that word. There is a, there's an honor that is tied to that word. There is a distinct function that is tied to that word. Husband. When I say wife, what does that mean? What does that mean for you? How does it make you feel? Does it make you feel burnt out? Burdened? Heavy? Alone? Does it make you feel joy? I am a wife. God has called me to this. How about when I say the word man or woman? These are just amazing words of God's design that have honor and dignity and function. And he wants us to know how potent they should be in our lives. We are not aware of what, something I've learned from this passage. We are not a, aware of who we truly are as much as we ought to be. Some of us are closer than others. You know, but embracing the role that God has called us to pursue and, 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 and how he has designed us should bring us joy. It should be a joyful pursuit for a husband to learn how to be a husband that he's been called to be. This should be a joyful pursuit for a wife to learn how to be the wife that God has called her to be. It should be a joyful pursuit to be a man or a woman, a bachelor, a bachelorette, whatever it is. This should be a joyful pursuit because it is how God has created us. There's a good chance that, that you are more aware of, of your failures in, your, in this role than your successes. Am I right? You're probably more aware of how you fall short in that role than how you succeed and have victory. And you're not alone. Your pastor feels that same way. That's me. I feel that same way. And as I learn these, these words of husband and man and pastor and father, these words... We can either say, well, I fall short, and so they just become words. They just become life stages. But these are not just life stages. These are callings. These are functions that God has given us to live out. It's amazing. It should be a joyful pursuit. You could be a student of your role. I encourage you to be a student of your role and function. To be a student as a husband, a father, a man, as a, as a wife, a woman, a mother, Whatever your role is, to be a student of that, learn. Read books. Go to people that you respect and talk to them. Can, can I sit with you and just listen? Can I talk to you about the struggles that I'm facing, the confusions that I have, the failures that I face every day? Be a student of your role. That'll help you in your joyful pursuit. Read and study and talk to people around you. In the weeks ahead, something I'm excited about, we're going to have resources available. We're going to have a resource center out in the lobby, something something that serves you well, that's discreet, you know, discreet but helpful, recommending different things that you might read and study to help you in this, in this joyful pursuit. And that's only a part of it. But we're just excited to open up that dialogue together. So we look at that. We look at what this teaches us about God. It looks at what does this teach us about ourselves, that we were created with a divine calling that was not by accident. How should we apply this passage? Right? The foundation of 1 Corinthians 11 calls for men and women and husbands and wives to come together in worship and to praise God together in such a way that affirms God's character and our design. And we should be careful to not do anything 
that would not affirm God's created order. So let's look at the question, how do we apply this today? Here's a quote. Biblical headship for the husband is the divine calling to take primary responsibility for Christ-like leadership, protection, and provision. Submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and helps carry it through according to her gifts. The head covering was, and still is, in many cultures, a symbol of authority of the husband over the wife. Paul is concerned with the head covering because it is an outward expression of something else. Paul is concerned with the head covering because it is expressing to people around how this person has either embraced or rebelled against her divine calling. And same for the man. If, a, if I saw a woman, if I left here and went to the mall and saw a woman wearing a hat, I would not think, oh, that's a married woman respecting her husband. If anything, it seems like in our culture, the opposite might be more true, where if we were to see them maybe from behind or from the side, it may almost look like a man, like if the hair was pulled up real tight or something like that. And so it, wouldn't, it, it would actually convey to us something different. When men wear more hats than ladies. You, you've heard the expression, you know, who wears the pants in the family? We know what that means, but the answer is everybody. <laughs> my my one-and-a-half-year-old, I mean, he, yeah, he, he wears the pants in the family, metaphorically, and, you know, somewhat, you know, realistic, too. Kind of runs the house. So what, is it, what does this mean? You know, these are expressions, these are outward expressions of, of a reality that we live. So whatever it meant in the first century, it doesn't mean today. But should we still obey 1 Corinthians chapter 11? The answer is yes. But what does that look like? You know, one of the commandments is, do not covet. You know this commandment. Do not covet your neighbor's ox. No problem. <laughs> Done. <laughs> I am so holy right now. I have, never, I have never coveted my neighbor's ox. But my neighbor's car... My neighbor's square footage? Yeah. So we still, we still obey that command. It's just applied a little different today. I'll say this, there's this one caveat, and then we'll talk about what it means for us. If you or someone you know, you're wrestling through this passage, you're familiar with this passage, you've encountered the passage, and you say, I feel that God is convicting my heart and calling me to obey this passage in such a way that I would wear a head covering in this context. I want you to know you're not being disobedient. You're not doing something wrong. You see, we've been learning, and Paul, is, there's this natural transition. We've been, we've been meeting for three weeks and talking about chapters 8, 9, and 10 about freedom. Freedom in Christ. Freedom to live as we please, as long as it doesn't, it doesn't go against something God has forbidden or, or commanded. So you are free to do so. And you should be treated with respect and love. So I wanted to say that. We won't make you at Holy Cross do that, because we see something else going on here. But I want you to be free to obey your conscience as you see that you should. For women... Let's talk about this. It should be visible. It should be, it should be visibly obvious that if you are married, that you are not wearing or doing anything 
that would dishonor your husband's leadership in your life. The way you speak about him in public, the way you speak about him to to your friends when he's not around, the way you disagree with your husband when he is doing something or thinking a certain way that you just don't agree with, when he's being a dummy in your eyes, the way you dress, you should... The things that you put on your body, you should be thinking, does this honor my husband? Does it respect the honor that that he deserves? The way you relate to other men, co-workers, neighbors, friends even, just friends at church too. The way you talk with them, the way you spend time with them, the the amount of, of influence that they have in your life and vice versa. It should be visibly obvious that you are a woman under the leadership and authority of your husband. At, at church, women should not seek to exercise authority or, or rebel against the leadership that God has placed in the church. I'm sure the women then ask, you know, as Paul is saying these things, and, and, and actually he's probably responding to a concern that they had, and that's why he's writing these, these letters like this. They may have asked, well, then what can women do? What can women do in church and in the home? And Paul, I think, anticipated this question. He spends the next three chapters talking about the mutual expression of the spiritual gifts that God has given everybody, man and woman, and encourages everybody to identify and embrace and to exercise the unique gifts that God has given them. To encourage and build up the church. Women and men can use any and all spiritual gifts and ministry to build up the church. And we should, as a church, affirm and encourage your involvement in the church, ladies. And your contribution should not be slighted. It should not be ignored. It should not be diminished in any way. And I feel like we've come short in that. As as a culture, as, as an evangelical church on many levels, that we haven't valued that, we haven't seen that kind of equality and dignity and honor that God has given to you as a woman, that he's given you spiritual gifts, that you're a vital part of the spiritual health of our church. Ladies, you are a vital part of the spiritual health of our church. I mean it. There's a certain function within the church that the Bible does prohibit for women, and that is, Paul talks about this in several occasions, to teach with authority, and to occupy a position of pastor or elder within the church as spiritual shepherd, as overseer, as steward of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're going to address it now. We won't get, we won't get to it in a couple weeks, but Paul says women should remain silent in church. And if they have a question, they should go home and ask their husbands about it. There's a couple things going on here. Ladies, how many of you have husbands that if you had a question, a spiritual question, you could go home and they could answer it with some competency? So it says something about men, but it also says something about what's going on here. He's talking about women who are praying and prophesying in the church. That when there was an interpretation of a prophecy, women would actually be contentious about it. They would stand up, and, and I've read some things that were really encouraging about this. There would, someone would be teaching or prophesying, and there would be a pastor or an elder that was standing close by in order to 
to affirm the soundness of what was going on there. And women were standing up and giving their two cents and causing contention. And so when Paul says women should be silent, he's not saying that women should be absolutely silent. We had a lady up here who was singing and praying in church. (laughs) Cutting edge. No, we affirm that. We are blessed by that. But he talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that women should not teach with authority over men. You see, when I come up here and I open God's Word, we believe something about God's Word. That God's Word and every bit of it is inspired by God. That it is authority and it carries with it the weight and authority of God Himself. That every word is being spoken as if it's being spoken directly by God. And so when we preach through a passage and I say, this is what God says, you should go out and do what God says with all of His mercy and grace and the power that He has given to you to be obedient. I am actually preaching authority over you. And if you don't do that, and you say, Holy Cross is my church, I love this church, I respect the elders, then you've given us permission to come to you to encourage you, to exhort you, to challenge you to live obedient lives. That's authority. And Paul says women should not occupy that kind of authority over a man. When we approach God's word, we do so with that kind of awareness. And then there's this responsibility given specifically to men within the church for instruction and leadership and governing. For Paul, Paul uses the example in verse 14. He says, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Some of you are saying, yes, <laughs> depending on what generation you just came out of. Yes, that is a disgrace for a man to wear long hair, but not today. What does it look like for a man to look like a girl today, so to speak? What is the equivalent of a man walking into the church wearing a dress and long hair and makeup? Where we would say, that's just not right for a man to do. It's good to ask those questions. Some of you might be, I don't know. The line is so thin, I just don't know. What does it look like for a man to be a man? It should be visibly obvious, men, that you are affirming your role to lead, to protect, to provide for your family. There should be no question as to who is responsible and the steward of their home. The Bible says that you are a shepherd. One of my favorite analogies in the Bible talking about a leader in a church is, is And Christ, a, a, an example of Christ, is him as the good shepherd, as a shepherd, shepherding his people. And there's this story that is told about Jesus as the good shepherd. And it says, he is like a good shepherd that has a hundred sheep. And if one of his sheep goes missing, he leaves the 99 and goes and finds that one sheep and brings it back. And there's an important detail of this story that is often missed. The detail is, he knew how many sheep he had exactly. And he counted so often that he knew when one was missing. You see, Jesus is such a good shepherd that he knows the condition of his flock. He knows their condition physically, emotionally. He knows our condition spiritually, relationally. He knows what we need so well that he knows how to meet those needs as soon as one of those needs go missing. 
An important detail. Husbands, you know, we should know how our wives are doing. We should know so well that when something is missing, we can see it. That when one of those sheep, so to speak, has gone missing, we know right away that we need to take some action. I'm sure she's getting encouragement from her friends. I'm sure she's getting along well. She went and got a pedicure yesterday. That should hold her off for about a month. I mean, she's fine, right? (laughs) Guys, we think like that. She's fine. I mean, I live my life. I've got a busy job. She lives her life. She's got a busy life. We're we're just kind of meeting together in the middle. So she's going to get encouragement. I'll get encouragement. We'll kind of get in, in the middle and bless one another. And guys, guys, God calls us to more than that. You know, sometimes they just need a hug, and that's true. Sometimes they need encouragement. Sometimes they need way more than that. Sometimes they need correction. Sometimes they need guidance and prayer. Sometimes they need instruction in God's Word and sit down and, and talk together. Sometimes they just need to be affirmed in their unique design as you are being affirmed in your unique design as a shepherd. It should be obvious that you're honoring. Another thing, guys, for us to do is that there's, it should be obvious that you're honoring your wife's design. I think an analogy that I learned to appreciate was, you know, guys, as we grow up, we are, we're taught to expose the vulnerable in others and to defeat it, like on a football field. We go for the small guy. We go for the weak guy, the slow guy. We, in, uh, we, we find the hole and the gap on the basketball court, so that we can drive in there and expose their weakness. And so when we are dealing with our wives, it's easy to see weakness or failure or things that are done differently than the way we would do it, and we don't honor it, but we expose it. We should honor their role, their design, their gifts, their calling. We should encourage her to pursue her gifts and to pursue her role and relationship with God, to invest in others, to invest in the church. We don't make decisions without their input in the process. We praise them when we see areas of God's work in their life. We honor them with our purity. And then it says something last about guys in the church. It should be obvious, guys, that you are embracing your unique design to build, to protect to contribute to the health and well-being of the church. Guys, God has given us something unique as a unique function that we are just abandoning. Maybe because we've never been taught. Maybe because we're scared. Maybe because it's just easier to let someone else do it. Not all are called to be a pastor. And I know that. Not all are called to be a shepherd or to be a theologian, but all of us who trust in Christ have this unique gift that should not be wasted. We should invest it in in the church and his people. So there is so much at stake. Do you see this passage? Wow, it's one that we just can't say, well, this is head coverings, this is weird for me, I'm going to skip it and go on to another thing. There is so much at stake that we need to wrestle with this and pray about this. And it's only when we as, as men and women who are in Christ, we will see this blessing and joy that God intends for our well-being of our home and in the church and in our lives. You know, when you hear all that God desires for you as a man and as a woman, you're probably going to want to quit. You're probably going to want to say, forget it. I'll go back to the shadow. 
I'll go back to letting someone else do it. When you hear about all that God has called you to as a man, you're going to want to quit. But both of these functions are just glorious beyond our comprehension. And when we pursue them and know them and grow in them and how God's created us, it will give us this joy and purpose and energy that we never knew was there. And we will get to a point, I know it because I've experienced it and I've seen it in other guys, that you're going to get to this threshold in knowing who you are and you're going to say, I never want to be anything but what God has called me to be. I never want to be envious of anything that anybody else has because I want what God has for me. To be the man and husband and father that he's called me to be. To be the woman and wife and mother that he's called me to be. And I want nothing but that. It's possible to get this fire and desire to pursue those things with joy. The reason for God's design aren't always apparent to us. The reason that God made you a woman, a mother, whatever, it might not be apparent. You don't know right away, God, why, why is this in front of me right now? Why have you given me this responsibility? Same thing for a guy. It might not be apparent to you right now why you are made the way that you are. But know that it is for your joy. It is for God's glory that you are made this way. That God, in seeing something as not good, He created an answer for that not, not good. And He made us in His image, according to His likeness, for our joy and His glory, so that we could grow in our comprehension of all that He is. You see, you are made woman so that you can know God more. You are made man so that you can know God more. And He's given you a unique function and responsibility and honor so that you could pursue Him in those ways. Isn't it great just to see a glimpse of this, of what God has has done for us? That it is not by accident. That he has created you and he's formed you in your mother's womb to be who you are and he's given you value and honor. And so we look at this passage and we we should wrestle with it. And I invite you to wrestle with it with me, but never stop being a student of what this says. To ask questions like, God, what do you want from me as a man? As a husband, as a father, as a woman, as a wife, as a mother. As someone in maybe transition of trying to figure out what tomorrow is going to look like or a month from now. What do you have for me as a, as a single person? Building my life, building my career. And it makes no confusion that we just read last week that that Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do for the glory of God, because this is not by mistake. I am excited to walk with each and every one of you, male, female, child, amen, brother, man, female, child, identifying and enjoying our unique design together so that we can encourage and build up one another to know God, to love our children, to see God do something dynamic in our life. Let's do that. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.